0: And actually, you know, a world in which managers and leaders could effectively fake humility would be a much better world than a world in which we see their genuine arrogance.
1: This is the Leadership 480 Podcast. Hi, leaders, and welcome back to the Leadership 480 Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Alms. And today we're talking about a really complicated but important topic. It's the intersection of confidence and humility in leadership. As leaders, we're often told about the importance of confidence and when in doubt, fake it till you make it. But overconfidence can create blind spots that open us up to real risk and can affect our effectiveness as leaders. So we're going to talk about how confidence relates to competence, and when it comes to leadership, what's the right amount of confidence, and how much should it mix with humility? I'm so excited to have with us today one of the world's top authorities on leader confidence, Dr. Tomas Chamorro-Premuzic. He is an organizational psychologist and chief talent scientist at Manpower Group. He's also the co-founder of two psychological profiling organizations called Deeper Signals and Meta Profiling, And if that's not enough, he's also the author of 10 books and a professor of business psychology at University College London and Columbia University. So Tomas, we are just thrilled to have you on the Leadership 480 podcast.
0: So am I. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a really a great pleasure and honor to be here.
1: So One of the things that I've heard you talk about in your speeches and in your books is the fact that confidence, it feels great when you have it. So it makes us feel good about ourselves. We like to see it in leaders. We feel great when our leaders are really confident. Uh, We've got that sense of security. They've got things covered. Um, And it's one of the reasons that so many of our revered leaders tend to be highly confident. So if it's great to feel confident, what's the danger?
0: Well, I think, you know, before we get to the dangers, it's important to understand that the advantages or benefits of confidence can be assessed or evaluated from a self or actor's perspective. You know, that's you, the person who maybe feels very confident, but then also uh, from the perspective of the observers or other people's points of view. And, you know, so it's helpful to understand. Um, that first of all, there aren't necessarily many benefits for others when you feel good about yourself. Let's say you gave a presentation and you thought you were amazing. Uh, You know, that's what you thought, or you thought you were great in an interview, or you thought you gave a great pitch to a client, or you thought you were very funny with a joke, or you just sang an amazing song or played an instrument in a very, very good way. So, you know, feeling good about your own performance is mostly unrelated uh, to your actual performance. And therefore, uh, if you look for benefits to actually feeling good about your performance or your behavior or anything you did, um, the fake it till you make it, or fake it till you make it kind of a mantra does apply, unfortunately, because one of the benefits of high confidence is that if you feel good about yourself, you might be better able to trick other people into thinking that you're better than you actually are, especially if your audience is not very, uh, proficient or not very competent when it comes to judging talent. So to finish, you know, with a very simple example, let's say I go to an interview and I'm being interviewed for a position of a leadership or management role, um, and I am feeling great about my talents, my stories. Uh, I'm a great storyteller. I tell you, you know, excellent kind of accounts of situations where I demonstrated courage, grit, humidity, and all these things. Uh, but actually there is no substance to me, it's just you know me and my self-belief. Well, it's quite likely that if interviewers are distracted by style and not very good at actually cutting through the noise and identifying the actual signals of competence, they'll be like, wow, this guy is very, very good. And now finally we get to disadvantages. What happens if we live in a society or if we work in an organization well, more often than not, people get promoted on the basis of how good they think they are as opposed to how good they are. Well, we end up with a lot of impostors and, you know, false positives and inept or incompetent people in charge. And then there's definitely lots of disadvantages for everyone else.
1: So as you talk about competence here and its relationship with, with confidence, you know, it's, I would imagine it's not a bad thing to feel confident about things you really are good at. You want to share that. Um, and then it's not a bad thing if you're, if you feel no confidence about, um, things you're really, you're really honestly not good at, but then there's some disconnects where some people feel overconfident when they're not so good. And some people feel not confident when they really are quite good at something. So how do you start to marry the two? How do you get a good sense of should my, how good is my confidence and should I be confident about it?
0: Yeah, so, um, I think, you know, the starting point is to define both terms because they sound very similar, but they are quite different. So competence is basically how good you are at something. Confidence is basically how good you think you are at something. We know that in any domain of performance or actual competence, the typical correlation between the two is 0.3 you square that you get the overlap which is 9% so there's only 9% overlap between how good you are at something and how good you think you are at something imagine two little Venn diagrams you know they only overlap by 9% they're barely touching each other and so therefore there's going to be a lot of times where your confidence it's out of sync with your actual competence ordinarily we would expect a lot of benefits in having your confidence in sync or aligned with your competence because it helps to know, for example, that you shouldn't cross a busy junction because there is a bus coming and that you're not able to get to the other side. And it helps to know that maybe uh, you're not very funny or you're not very creative and you shouldn't say certain things to a client or in a job interview. So I think your ability to, um, to know what you know and what you don't your ability to be aware of your limitations is a fundamental adaptational virtue of confidence that is in sync with your actual competence. So um, it's useful then to look at the other scenarios. What happens where in, in situations where you're underconfident? I mean, this is basically what we tend to ostracize, condemn, and almost um, you know pathologically um i would say um uh, lament and uh, critique in society especially western societies but especially in the us there's this assumption that people are almost pathologically insecure that everybody needs to have uh, like a tim robbins like life coach to tell them you know believe in yourself and uh, uh, and that we all suffer from uh, inaccurately low levels of self belief If you walk through any airports and you look at the books or you look at the self-help literature, you would believe that's correct. But actually, again, interesting data point. Most people are overconfident. The majority of people think too highly of themselves. Uh, The reason why there is a low correlation between confidence and competence is because we mostly see ourselves too positive. Something that has to do with self-enhancing biases. It's a lot more uh pleasant to think that you're better at something that you actually are to predict a rosy future to think that tomorrow everything all your problems are going to go away etc but if that becomes a habit or if that becomes exacerbated you're going to live in la la land and you know your your self-beliefs and your ego and your self-confidence is going to maybe just match how positively your parents see you or saw you when you were when you were little. If you're part of you know a group where parents told you you're amazing, even if you're not. And then when we get to the situation in which you you think more highly of yourself, that's definitely something that is uh, the dangers and the risks of that are generally underrated. We haven't spent enough time. I mean, I certainly have, but in general. Whether you're an expert, a consultant, a business leader, thought leader, or a self-help guru, we haven't spent enough time uh, highlighting the potential detrimental effects and the negatives of thinking too highly of yourself. Um, but I'll give you a few Um, if you think you're better at something that you actually are, you probably won't develop competence, right? If I think I'm really fluent in German, but I can barely speak, I mean, I, you know, I won't study it and my German will still suck. Um, if, um, we talked about humility in your introduction, if. If I want to develop humility and uh, model it as a leader and I want to let other people speak and listen to them. So the very opposite to what I'm doing now when I'm mansplaining, you know, humility and over, overconfident, okay. then it helps to actually be aware of my limitations. And fundamentally, you know, the more, um, in touch or the more aligned your confidence is with your actual competence, uh, the more accurately you will be able to assess and evaluate risks. Um, make predictions about the future, and you know all of that happens at the individual level. Again, at the collective level or the societal or organizational level, um, we are far better off if we actually focus on people's competence and not their confidence. Um, especially, or not least, because um, historically we assume that high confidence is good because it will actually develop or translate into competence you know this is sort of the self-efficacy or just do it or you know the 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 myth of whether you think you can do it or not you're usually right or if you believe in yourself enough good things are going to happen you know i mean history is replete or full of people who thought they were amazing at something and they weren't and it didn't end up very well but we don't write biographies on them you know they're not the Elon Musk's or or the Jeff Bezos of the world so I think bottom line we and others are generally better off if we can align people's confidence with their competence which as you know is what good leadership development and coaching interventions do they try to help people understand what they're good at and what they're not good at so that they actually don't operate or live in a delusion universe, but in the real world, give people a reality check is very, very helpful and you need to do it in a kind and politically skilled way, of course. Um, but it's a much, much needed, um, lacking, uh, process in the world of business.
1: So one of the things you said here that I think is so powerful is, how overconfidence as leaders, one of the dangers is that it stops us from learning. So we think we're really good at something and then we think, I don't have to work on this. I don't have to do this, Um, but it can be hard to know. Sometimes we're not super self-aware about what we're really good at, what we're not. So what are some of the cues you can start to look for, the feedback loops that you can say, okay, maybe I do need to work on this skill a little bit more than I thought I did, or I might not be excelling here quite as much as I thought.
0: Mm -hmm. Definitely asking other people. And then the question is, how and whom, who do you ask, right? So uh, let's start with the who. You should ask people who understand your domain of competence or the skill that you are requesting feedback on. You know, so if I, I don't know, if I want to know whether... Uh, i am good at playing soccer it helps to ask somebody who actually is a soccer coach and not you know my mom or uh, uh, my best friend or somebody who has never watched the sport and doesn't understand it right so ask f- ask for feedback from people who have expertise who are competent and actually understand the domain or trade or ability or skill that you're inquiring about and um, they should also be Uh, not conflicted and honest and have the guts or the courage to actually be honest with you and tell you not what you want to hear but what you need to hear you know one of the disadvantages of living in a world that is mostly very nice and pro-social and civilized is that We're encouraged to lie to others all the time. So, you know, I just met you, but if you ask me after this, how was I interviewing us? I'm going to say, Beth, you were amazing. It was great because, you know, I have no desire to start conflict. And, you know, I like you and I want to maintain good relations. And this happens more and more if you work with people, if they're your colleagues. And we know that a lot of bosses and managers struggle to provide negative feedback because they prefer to avoid conflict, which in the long run generates a lot of conflict. So as people who are honest ask people who are competent and then fundamentally ask people who actually care about your development who are interested in making you better that's you know what great managers and great leaders should do I do believe in the leader as a coach kind of framework or model but because that doesn't happen so often these things, these scenarios are rare we are actually quite deprived from organic or natural feedback from others and therefore you have this wonderful thing called the coaching and leadership development industry of which you're part of, which actually provides data-driven tools and experts to do this. There would be, in a world where most leaders and managers provided employees with feedback to align their confidence with their competence, and where your peers gave you feedback and your employees gave feedback to you as a the leader, there would be no 360-degree service. There will be no, there will be far fewer executive coaching engagements, there will be a lot less leadership development gigs because people would be aware of their reputation and they would understand their strengths and their weaknesses. And they will be called weaknesses and not opportunities because there's no need for euphemisms when we talk about flaws. Um, so that's basically the best case scenario for most managers and leaders. They call in an expert, the expert comes with a tool, a well-designed 360 or an assessment that predicts the 360 or data points. And they have the objectivity and the neutrality of a third party who can say, well, don't blame me. But according to this tool and the people we asked, <laughs> you don't listen. Uh, you're too excitable and uh, you can't give feedback and you get upset about things very easily. What? Who said that? And then that's the reaction. With the reaction, you can see that you were right. The reaction validates the tool. And um, so data driven tools to provide feedback are. Critical, they're essential. What they mostly do is align confidence with competence. And you know, I have a um, uh, controversial, but I think data-driven take on this, which is most of well-designed leadership development and executive coaching interventions um, have as an objective to lower leaders' confidence, not to increase it. Because mostly, if you can help leaders or managers understand that they're not as good as they thought. They're going to develop humility, they're going to develop skill, and they're going to grow and get better. Whereas if you have populist and inept or unethical coaches that only care about pleasing the client and making leaders or managers feel good about themselves, it's like fueling gasoline to the fire. It's like, you know, you have leaders who are probably quite full of themselves and uh, arrogant and narcissistic which is why they were promoted in the first place and then we call somebody to tell them that they're amazing and that they're a star and sometimes their coaches will charge a lot of money because that's part of the you know narcissistic uh, dynamic that is a play it's a it's a status thing to have x or y coach and then they come and flatter their egos and they tell them they're amazing so it's a vicious circle we need to break. Uh, but there you have it. Those are the sources of feedback. Maybe one more to add, which is obviously technology, wearables, um, big data. I mean, we are now living in a world where most of us get automated or AI-driven, um, uh, data-driven feedback on what we do. We look at how many steps we did, whether our sleep was okay or not. You know, We can monitor whether we're drinking too much. Uh, sleeping well enough, exercising enough. We monitor our heartbeat. We monitor our, you know, cortical activities, etc. Uh, it's not unthinkable that in the near future we will have APIs or technologies that scrape a Zoom call or a team call and ra- rate us on empathy or humility or months planning. And that you know the gap or the void that exists to help us understand uh, the distance between our confidence or our competence is filled or you know, populated with big tech, with technology, with uh, big data and with AI. Uh, After all, algorithms are pretty unemotional and uh, cold and ruthlessly objective when they provide us with feedback, you know? It's not like a boss says, you're not going to get the bonus because you didn't do very well. Why? Well, uh, you know, I can't justify it. I mean, if you go down to the nitty-gritty granular of what happens, then you can actually quantify everything you do and it's a fairer place albeit also more sanitized and cold.
1: So let's talk a little bit then about humility. And one of the benefits of being a humble leader is that ability to listen to feedback. You don't discount the critical feedback and say, they don't know what they're talking about. That's not me. You're able to really take that and action on it. But what does humility look like as a positive trait in leaders? You know, it's not necessarily sitting there and being self-deprecating all the time. I'm terrible. I'm horrible. Nobody wants to follow that leader. Right. But what does it really look like when leaders truly adopt humility and know how to show it?
0: So I define humility as an awareness of your limitations uh, and as a mild version of imposter syndrome. So if you think about imposter syndrome as sort of the pathological and very neurotic uh, condition whereby you are so self-critical and harsh when you evaluate yourself that you feel like a fraud. And that's not good. It's not nice. It's not pleasant. And it's also inhibiting. And, you know, that needs to be tackled by actually increasing people's confidence so that they are more realistic in their self-views. But if you think about a minor version of that, I think you really are looking at modesty or humility. There's the inser- internal side of things, which is having humble evaluation of your talents so i my achievements might be amazing but when i look at them uh, i don't feel that great i feel that maybe i got lucky or i had to work a lot or that i still have a lot more to achieve because i compare myself with people who are uh, more impressive or more successful than myself and therefore i just don't believe my own hype and i am self-critical not, again, in a, in a pathological and inhibiting way, but in a healthy way that keeps me real and that actually keeps me ambitious. To some degree, I think, ambition is always uh, uh, the consequence or the product of not being satisfied with your accomplishments and your performance. And then, of course, there's the external side of humility, how I present myself. We often complain when people are not humble, And we even complain when we think that they're acting in humble ways, but it's not genuine. And actually, you know, a world in which managers and leaders could effectively fake humility would be a much better world than a world in which we see their genuine arrogance. (laughs) You know, I have no issue training or coaching managers and leaders so that they can learn to seem humble or come across as humble in a meeting. That means again not monopolizing the conversation sh- uh, asking questions uh, having uh, the courage to uh, open up about their vulnerabilities their limitations and, you know spend more time listening than talking etc so i think all these things are easier to model and i think you know there are still a lot of benefits to having a leader who is um, internally humble but externally um, confident and you know doesn't doesn't come across as very self-critical or very modest uh, generally speaking at the performance instance it will help you to be uh, to come across as assertive and confident when you're actually delivering the performance but when you're preparing humility is essential to actually over prepare and study and you know and uh, learn and and not be overconfident or complacent and you can also think of a scenario where having an internal arrogance that is masked with external humility is beneficial as well um you know so i think the ideal case of course is where you have internal and external but we have to be realistic and A lot of what you can do in coaching or leadership development interventions is to start by teaching people, especially leaders, how to behave in more humble ways and how to fake humility or model or manage an impression of themselves so that they have a reputation for not being arrogant, but being more humble and modest.
1: So this idea of internal versus external confidence and in, in where you question yourself, but maybe you project some confidence out there is really interesting as you think about um, how we are leaders in practice with our teams versus what it kind of takes to get the job. Um, knowing that a lot of, you know, we often hire leaders who are very confident because they sound great. It's like, it sounds like you've got this. Um, and we know that a lot of groups, you know, there's often gender differences, you know, uh, it's not a rule, but women leaders tend to be more humble. And as a result, they may not even go for a leadership job if they don't think they have all the qualifications um, and they're not projecting the same confidence as someone else. So how do those two kind of mix in what you need to get the role? You need to show some confidence if you're working in an environment that rewards confidence um, versus what you actually do in practice as a leader.
0: Yeah. So two really important points. I start with a generic one, which is um, it's absolutely essential that you leverage confident displays or external confidence uh, and humility in your self-presentation. I mean, in a perfectly logical, rational um, and content-driven world, this wouldn't be necessary. You know, we will be just like machines and you're downloading your expertise onto my brain and I assess it and I said, okay, fine. And I don't want you to smile, to be polite, to seem interested and to tell me, oh, you know, it's so nice to meet you because it doesn't matter. So we completely eliminate style and it's all about substance. But in the world of humans, probably 60 or 70% is style. So how you dress, how you present yourself, how you shake hands, how you... Uh, interact with others, whether you do eye contact, all of these things, whether we're conscious of it or not, interfere and uh, influence our judgments of others. So even when we think that we're evaluating somebody's competence, we are influenced by both their confidence and their humility. So, you know, uh, I might be looking at your resume in an interview and be very impressed by what you have achieved in your previous role. And when I tell you, wow, Beth, I mean, you really managed this. This is amazing. And you said, yeah, but, you know, I was really lucky. I had a great team and it was really a function of my mentor. And if that sounds sincere, suddenly your amazing accomplishment in your resume is worth even more because it comes and, you know, it's sort of embellished by humility. Uh, On the other hand, um, if I'm not sure about something and I look at your resume and say, hey, have you really managed a digital transformation in the past because it's not clear and you give me a very assertive answer and I don't actually understand the field, you might convince me and fool me that you're actually good at it when in fact you're not. And of course, it gets more complicated when you're actually not trying to deceive me but you deceived yourself because you thought you were amazing at that job. And that's how we get to gender. The gender differences in confidence are very consistent. Women are not pathologically insecure. They generally don't have imposter syndrome. And, you know, we don't need to encourage them to lean in because they don't believe in themselves. Women are generally optimistic and overconfident, as men are, but less so than men. So it's more likely to find a female than a male who has an accurate assessment of their competence, who has self-awareness and who has humility because you need to be in the slightly underconfident or self-critical uh, side of the spectrum to show humility. Um, but of course, the standards or the parameters that we use to either reward or uh, sanction or punish or sun- sanction displays of confidence and humility are not fair. They're not the same for men and for women. Um, You know, we've spent a long time trying to encourage women to show male-like confidence and arrogance but when they do we're typically put off because they seem you know pathologically ambitious or they're outmailing males in masculinity you know they look like margaret thatcher and that's you know not okay it doesn't fit the stereotype and um, so then when women are told to show humility and you know to show some modesty and not brack and you know not be arrogant Uh, then we conclude, oh, they're probably not that interested in the job because, you know, they're not showing us pathological signs of ambitions, They're not very assertive, right? So it's a loose-loose situation or a double bind. On the other hand, actually, even for men, there is some somewhat of a tax or a punishment if they show uh, their self-criticism, their humility, and their vulnerability because we live in a world where they're competing against more men who show assertiveness. And again, it's all about... The uh, judges' expertise or ability to evaluate competence and talent in others. But generally speaking, people are not very good at doing this intuitively. We're not very good, other than you know Simon Cowell and his team and the X Factor. We're not very good judges of other people's talents. And some people might be good. Um, you know, I certainly think I am because I spend a lot of time doing this. Um, but you know, maybe that's because my intuition has become very data-driven. But I'm also aware that I'm probably overly uh, optimistic about my abilities. And I'm definitely aware that just because I might be good and I might be an expert, I cannot do this systematically and consistently, right? I'm a human being, therefore um, today I'm very happy because uh you know I had a great long weekend or something happened and then you come in and you know I'm not aware of it but I'm positively biased towards everything you say or do tomorrow. You know, maybe I had a bad day at the office. So you know we always say break the bias, but the only way to break the bias is to break the humans. Humans are naturally biased and we bring all these things. So being aware of the biases doesn't de-bias our judgments of other people's talent or potential. And because of that, the incentive to um to fake good and the incentive to engage in effective impression management is very very high for anyone you know so when we tell people let your achievements speak for themselves Go there and be yourself. Don't worry about what people think of you. Those are recipes for disasters. Uh, there's never going to be a single person in the world in the history of humanity that manages to follow that advice and get a job or get a promotion. <laughs> uh, so um, it sounds Machiavellian. It sounds ruthless, but it is what it is. And you know, just like you want to make a good impression on a first date and you don't want to tell people about all your bad habits and your flaws and that you know you don't brush your teeth every night and that you actually snore you know, you save that for six months after you marry the person. <laughs> right. Same if you're applying for a job. You know, you bring your best game and you try to make a good impression. And by the way, smart interviewers will assume that you are exaggerating a little bit, so they'll discount from the claims you make. And they might discount more if you're a man and less if you're a woman. But impression management is is a given, and confidence and humility are a big part of that.
1: So as you talk about going for a job, there's certainly the confidence um, that we project upwards to the people above us who are are in charge of our um, promotions, things like that. But then there's also the flip side of how, of how your own team perceives you. So um, there's an aspect of leadership that people do like to follow confident leaders. They think, oh, my leader has got this covered. If I do what they're asking me to do, then I will be great. We will all achieve this. This feels really good. We're all going in a great direction. Um, no, obviously that can also backfire if the leader is overconfident and you're feeling like, okay, I'm working for this guy and he's got no idea what to do here. That's very frustrating on the flip side. Um, you know, people might appreciate the humility of a leader and saying they rely on your expertise, but not, um, they don't want you to be too humble and that like they're worried like they don't know what they're doing like does anyone know what direction we're going in so what's the balance of confidence and humility as you're working with your team and how does it how do you use those two traits to build the trust you need to get people on board with your vision
0: yeah so you know i think it helps to think first of normal jobs outside of leadership because everybody loves the idea that confidence is really uh, a big career lubricant and a a career advancement tool and we all want to have more of it etc but you know I don't know about you, but I would rather have a pilot flying my plane who is competent and not confident or a brain surgeon. You know, I mean, if I tell you, yeah, you're going to have this, undergo this very difficult medical procedure and an operation. And it's like, do I have the best doctor? I don't know, but he's really, really confident. Do you feel good? I mean, you know, so I think we should really focus on how good people actually are. And this rule should apply to leaders as well. So, of course let's say a team or an organization or a nation is undergoing a difficult, turbulent situation, I think if the leader is assertive and confident and can um, provide a calming and soothing influence on the team by absorbing some of the stress and has the emotional intelligence and the confidence to uh, keep hope alive and tell people, listen, everything is going to be fine. Follow me, I know what I'm doing. There's definitely a very positive short-term effect of that, right? Which is maybe morale will be intact and people won't collapse, won't stress out, won't have an anxiety attack or nervous breakdown. But what if the leader was totally wrong? What if that, you know, uh, that uh, signal that everything will be all right was either a lie or a consequence of their own internal overconfidence? then you know that group that team that organization that nation is not going to be better off in the future it would have been far better for that leader to say listen this is going to be very hard and i don't know if we're going to do it but i can tell you that i'm going to be 100 percent committed to making it work and we're going to work on it together and even though i know that i don't know the answer i will find whatever way is available to learn it and you're going to help me and be a part of that I think that second scenario you know definitely requires uh, a more mature a higher level of maturity in followers and employees or subordinates I'm a big fan of Barbara Kellerman she's a professor at the um, at the Kennedy School of Politics in in Harvard and she always talks about how underrated followers are we spend all this time talking about leaders but what about followers who A, account for more variability in performance, and B, there's always going to be more followers than leaders in the world. There needs to be a certain level of maturity in followers to understand that it is not just okay, but a healthy um, thing to follow a leader who says, I don't know. If our definition of leadership, credibility, or potential is people who pretend to know the answer when in fact they know, they don't, or people who always seem... Um, you know, people who are always wrong, but never in doubt. I mean, then we shouldn't be surprised that we have the problems that we have, uh, you know, so I think fundamentally it's all about competence. And again, to build the competence that enables you to lead a team or an organization through a difficult situation, it would have helped historically to have some humility. So that you learn and you develop your competence and, you know, you close the gap between the skills you have and the skills you want to have. And probably it would have been helpful and advantageous to have some, some confidence so that you go outside your safe zone and you take risks and you actually perform in high stakes situations. But again, the ideal leader, whether it's a stress situation or not is somebody who isn't deluded and somebody who isn't a liar. And, you know, the trouble is, um, most people prefer a uh, uh, positive and self-enhancing view of reality than uh, you know, brutally honest or um, hyper-alarming or negative view of reality. But therefore, if our solution is to pick leaders who are great storytellers and who are great entertainers and who are great at distracting us and at perpetuating the delusion that everything is fine when in fact it's not, it's not a very good situation to be in in, in the long term.
1: Such a powerful message, I, you know, having that humility to know this is that we're not there yet, but the confidence to say we can learn and, and work on this together, we can get there, um, really helps to bring that team trust together. And so far, we've really been focused on the leader themselves. You know, how do I know that I'm doing this right or wrong? How how do I know if I'm overconfident? But You mentioned something that I want to go back to, which is um, that leaders are also asked to be talent spotters many times. So, you know, if I'm a leader, I'm also asked to spot leadership potential on my team, who's ready to step up. So how do you break the cycle of you turn right around and you do the same thing of looking at the most confident people on your team and saying, oh, you know, this guy's ready and this person's ready. How do you switch your own thinking to also reward and and think about on your team who's really ready for leadership and not just rewarding you know the people who feel who appear most confident Mm -hmm.
0: it's really difficult it it requires expertise dedication humility of course because you can't trust your instincts and and you really need professional help and the help of tools and data etc to do it i mean you have to think that for the vast majority of our 300,000-year evolution, talent was very easily observable. You know, it was mostly about can you hunt or run fast or fight a predator. Um, you know, are you courageous? Are you strong? Um, are you fast? Are you skilled in a kind of physical way? And you know, so the traits that actually made up talent were very easy to observe on an intuitive basis. And on top of that, we spend all of our lives with the same 15 or 20 people. So we knew everybody really well, right? It might be hard for you to assess whether somebody has potential if you just met him, but if you work with them for six years, you probably know what their what their typical and maximal level of performance is. And on top of that, the skills that make up Talent today, especially leadership talent, which is the most important one because it's the talent that influences everybody else and uh, has the biggest is the biggest single agent of influence on a team, an organization, etc. Um, those skills are not observable. There are things like empathy, curiosity, critical thinking, strategic thinking, intelligence, learning ability, um, humility, even. And you know, we think we can observe them because. We inherited our ape-like brains that you know trusted everything they saw, and you know we believe in our intuition. But actually, you can't infer it, right? So, the only way I could really, um, the only approach I could follow, if I truly were to observe your leadership talent, is to put you in a situation and have you lead, and that cannot be simulated very easily I mean you can try to do it in an assessment center but you know it's not a real situation so I would actually have to look for how you work with a team how you develop them etc and that's a no-go approach because I have to appoint you in the first place so the next case scenario is to really break down to the critical and foundational components what leadership potential is and understand that, you know, it's always going to be somewhat specific, but you're always going to have these foundational competencies, integrity, intelligence, curiosity, you know, emotional intelligence, empathy, people skills, humility, resilience, etc. And then understand that you can't ask or rely on managers or leaders to be a really accurate source to evaluate these things, that you have to put people through an assessment, you have to get data, et cetera. Because when we ask managers or leaders to do it, inevitably they end up hiring people like themselves. You know, hiring people that look like you is a very socially legitimized way to unleash your narcissism. When you say, Oh, I have a successor. They look amazing. Yeah. It's me and me. Okay. Yeah. Of course. You know, they're great because they look like you or they're going to be influenced by people who manage up. You know, this is one of the, you know, problematic paradoxes of internal succession planning or intuitive leadership. Identification is like, if you're my employee and you spend 90% of your time managing up and sucking up to me, you're more likely to be my my successor than if you actually spend 90% of the time working, making other people better, and actually you do the work. And so leaders or managers are neither very uh, technically competent, nor do they have the bandwidth, and they are conflicted, and they are the target of um, all these deception and impression management tactics that employees, smart astute employees, will engage in because they want to get promoted. So um, it's quite interesting if you think about it. Even when we say, "Okay, lean in, um, raise your hand, uh, you know, um, promote yourself, promote more, etc." In a normal world leadership identification or the nomination of future leaders whether it's in high potential programs or, or otherwise would not rely on people putting themselves forwards. Uh, we would actually tap in the back people who are very busy working and who haven't thought that they have to spend a lot of the time promoting themselves. And I think there is a wonderful quote by Plato I think from the Republic where he says something along the lines of Only those who don't seek power should be allowed to have it, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which is very much along these lines of, um, you know, let's make promotion into leadership roles less about self-promotion or other promotion in the case of your manager or your key stakeholders that you've managed to co-opt or enlist. And let's make them more about potential and actual achievements.
1: Wow, that's... It's a hard thing to do, easy easy to talk about, a much harder thing to do on, on your team when you're recognizing it. So last, I have a question that I ask all of our guests on the show. Um, can you share with me a moment of leadership that changed your life and your perspective?
0: You know, it's a really good question. And I think for me, <laughs> it was... It was a negative moment, a sad moment, I would say, but it was a very critical moment that truly was life changing because it was, the year was 1998, it was in Argentina in my early twenties and uh, after experiencing 10, 15, 20 years of bad governments, one government, one bad government after another and, you know, having the maturity and the knowledge and the the intelligence to understand that a country that has great individual potential still fails to organize itself collectively courtesy of charismatic but incompetent leaders who rise to the top. Um, The sort of the cherry on top of the cake, if you like, was watching the news and seeing uh, our president escape the the our equivalent of the white house which is the pink house in helicopter while there were protests there because he didn't want to Mm -hmm. do it and that's how he quit the job right so so he just left and fled in his private helicopter and that was his resignation so at that moment i decided that i would leave my country and escape in an equally cowardly way like our (laughs) president but i just you know whatever i wanted to achieve or do there would require ten times the energy for ten times less rewards, and that it matters a lot where you're born and where you stay when you are you know, ambitious and want to pursue a career. Uh, little did I know that 20 years or 25 years later, I will be writing about charismatic but incompetent leaders in the <laughs> okay. UK and in the US, and that you know the same profile that I endured and suffered during my teens and in Argentina of, Overconfident and charismatic people who get to leadership roles without actually having the talents or competence to back it up would be a pervasive and universal thing. But the difference is that in countries like the UK and the US, you still have well-functioning and cemented institutions that allow you to make mistakes uh, a few times. And you also have um, societies and values that are still not sufficiently corrupted and continue to work for mostly the good of the majority of the people. But what I'm saying today is more controversial than it was 10 years ago and 20 years ago. And I know a lot of people on both sides of the spectrum in the U.S. would find that I'm just, you know, living in La La Land or being naive. (laughs) So, you know, but I think for me, it was certainly consequential. It changed my life. I made a big life decision. One of the most important decisions I made in my life, which is to try to leave wherever I can and however I can. And it also really um, instilled this passion I have to understand leadership and to uh, correct or fix or help people fix bad leadership, so that we can improve things for everybody.
1: Such a such a wonderful and powerful story, and I appreciate you sharing it. And I hope that all the leaders who are listening to this podcast today have really um, taken all these real these real nuggets of wisdom to self-reflect on on where they should be confident where they should be seeking more feedback on confidence where they can be leading their teams with the right um notion for for growth and humility that of of the work it's going to take to get where they need to go um so i think you've shared so much with us today and i i really appreciate you so thank you for being here on the leadership 480 podcast
0: great pleasure and uh, i really enjoyed our conversation thank you so much for having me again
1: of course. And thank you to our listeners who took part of their 480 minutes today to be with us and remember to make every moment of leadership count.